today. Each week we have new people that were part of our Grace Life family before COVID coming back. I'm very excited about that. Um, I just, uh, at one point, I'm going to hug all of you in like big time. <clears throat> so <clears throat> um, we're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. And I got a little a hint today that if I tell you this is the last week, you'll pay more attention while I'm preaching it. So this is the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark right here. So you want to really pay attention. It's the last one. It's not. But it's the last one. This week I've called this sermon a merry moment. Uh, can you recall, personally speaking, a moment, whether is it recently or in the distant past, where Jesus got your full attention? That moment where Jesus became the most important thing, excuse me, the most important person in your life over anything else, job, family, money, politics, anything. Maybe, excuse me, maybe it was a life-threatening moment where you experienced some sort of miraculous intervention of God's hand in your life. Maybe it was that moment where knowledge, grace, and mercy, all three collided at one moment in your heart and the gospel became real or personal. Maybe it was a moment that God used you in the life of someone else for that collision of knowledge, grace, and mercy to bring about that collision in their hearts. Do you remember how you responded to that moment? Do you remember where you were? Remember how you felt? What were your actions? What were your words? I remember several moments like that in my life. The moment, the first one I think about is when I was in ninth grade. It was the moment where knowledge, grace, and mercy collided in my heart, and I became a child of God for the first time. It was surreal. I remember it vividly to this day, where I was, who I prayed with, what color his Bible was that he opened up and showed me. 1981. I remember about 18 months later, I was a sophomore on a Sunday night service in my church that I felt this uh, uncontrollable call to be a pastor. I didn't know what these emotions were. I was so overcome. I'm not going to give you all the details. It's an incredible story. If you ever want to hear it sometime, ask me, I'll tell you. But it was just this unbelievable, oh, wow, this is it kind of moment. This week, our passage this week in in the Gospel of Mark is a moment like that. When a first century woman collided with the reality of who Jesus really was. That moment that compelled her to an extravagant expression of worship that others criticized. But she didn't care. As Christians, we don't, you know, we think about, we live for those moments, don't we? And the reason I think it is is because we realize those moments are really just simply a small little taste of eternity. And that's what we're going to study today. So here's the passage, Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 3 to 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. 
There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So let's look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about this anointing of Jesus that we see. We're going to... We can't really preach this passage without a little help from the Gospel of John. This story is also found in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to read it, but there are some very important details that we're going to draw from John's account. We learn that Jesus first arrived, excuse me, we learn that Jesus first arrived for Passover in the evenings. He would stay in Bethany. If you remember that, we talked about that several sermons earlier. Bethany is a small town just outside of Jerusalem. John tells us that this scene doesn't take place on Thursday evening after Jesus had been in the temple. It actually takes place five days earlier on Saturday night when they first entered Bethany. So it's before Temple Tuesday and Confrontation Wednesday and all those things. John says they're in the house of a leper whom Jesus previously healed. His name was Simon. Even as a former leper, of course, he'd be living in some sort of stigma and burden of isolation. And John also tells us who the woman in the story was that broke this expensive flask of oil. It is actually Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus. If you guys remember who Lazarus was, he's the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. That's her brother. More on that later. So with that in mind, I want to talk about oils at dinner. So it's a full house. There's no COVID restrictions. Disciples and the others that are in Jesus' close circle, several women, people impacted by his ministry, all of them are together. I'd probably say it's probably 30 people, maybe more. It's dinner time. And in the first century, especially in the Jewish culture, everyone would be laid back at dinner time, lounging, relaxing. They're going to be there for a while, probably as overnight guests. Nobody's in a hurry. It's no to-go bag. That's what an evening meal would be like in the first century. Long conversations. It was considered an evening together. And in accordance with culture, the women are there serving the guests. And frankly, they're almost invisible to the men. So there's many people that are enclosed in the room. Of course, you know, it's not Michigan. This is Israel. In the spring, it's very warm. They don't have access to daily showers like we have today. We're Floridians, right? So you can see where I'm going with this. Crowded room, hot temperatures, no baths. No doubt there was, shall we say, an aroma. And since bathing wasn't a daily option in this arid, hot region, they would use heavily concentrated perfumed oils to combat The smell. These perfumed oils were not cheap. They were extremely expensive, but they were very, very concentrated. So just a few drops 
would go a long way, actually, in covering up any offensive odors. What's really interesting is when you hosted guests in your house, it was actually a very common courtesy to anoint them with a few drops of your expensive oil. Make them feel welcomed, less conscious of how they might be offending other people. Isn't that interesting? You were expected to, you weren't expected like today, if you invited me to dinner and I came like after a day at the beach and I smelled really bad, your first thought was, Joe, what are you doing? Can you take a shower? Here, you weren't expected to come clean. People knew you wouldn't be able to. Your host would take care of that for you out of respect. So it's very important to understand that cultural norm. Then I'm going to talk about what the disciples called a wasted a thing, a waste, waste of ointment. Suddenly, there's this invisible Mary, right, the, the sister of Lazarus. She becomes the center of attention with an outlandish, lavish display of love for Jesus. She pulls out an expensive, expensive marble flask of pure nard oil worth about 300 denarii, which means what it would cost you for a year's wages. That's a lot of expensive oil. It was imported, this nard oil was imported from India, so it wasn't local. It's the most expensive form of this type of aromatic perfumed oil you could find, more concentrated than any other. And Mary doesn't just use the customary drop or two, which would be accepted. She breaks, and it has this long, narrow neck, right? And you know why that would be, right? So that when you pour it, it all doesn't come out, right? That's what the narrow thing. She breaks it so that she can pour it freely, the entire bottle. She lavishly pours all of it on Jesus' head and his feet. She pours it like it's water, not costly oil perfume. And John, in the Gospel of John, he says the fragrance was so strong, it filled the whole house. There was no need for anyone else to have any because she wasted it all on one man, Jesus. And immediately one disciple, according to Mark, snaps at her. What are you doing, woman? We could have sold this for a year's worth of wages and given it to the poor. You know who John says it was that said that? Judas. As a matter of fact, John adds even more details. John says, but Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was the one that was holding the money box And John gives us incredible details. He says that Judas had been stealing from it all along. You know, Judas's corruption wasn't just when he betrayed Jesus. He'd been stealing money the whole time he'd been following. Jesus knew this. But suddenly now, because Judas cries out, that's a waste, woman, what are you doing? And the rest of the men all gang up on Mary, rebuking her, thinking, of course, Jesus would agree. He likes helping the poor. This is a waste of money. I can't believe you poured out all this oil. That's the history of the past. Let's talk about the spiritual part. I want to talk about a moment to remember. So this first part, I've called it something beautiful. What Jesus does immediately, I love this. He shuts them all up and he takes Mary's side. This woman who was previously invisible, probably her job was to go around at this point and anoint each person with a drop or two of oil. She pours it all on Jesus. He harshly rebukes Judas and the rest of the men who ganged up on her, leave her alone. I think what she just did was incredibly beautiful. Here's the Greek word for beautiful. It's kalos. 
The word that Jesus uses, it means that something's invaluable, intrinsic worth. You can't put a price on it. Literally, more virtuous in all appearances than anything else. Jesus says, this is the most beautiful thing anyone could do for me, the most precious thing anyone could do for me at this moment tonight, today. Nothing could exceed what she just did. Nothing. This is the most beautiful, is really what Jesus is saying. It's far more valuable than the year's wages we could have gotten out of it. It can't be measured in earthly terms, her sacrifice. It's more than anything you could fetch for it on Amazon or eBay. Jesus is doing more than just defending Mary's actions here. He's trying to teach his disciples once again a lesson that they have failed to receive. You remember what that is? They did not want to accept that Jesus was about to die. John says Mary did this in symbolic preparation for Jesus' burial, which is also common, as you could imagine, to anoint a body with oil for obvious reasons, right? You would use a lot of it. Jesus says, don't scream at her. This is beautiful. What she's doing is she's recognizing that I'm going to die. She's preparing me for my burial. We know the disciples struggled, right, with this idea of accepting that Jesus was talking about his death all the time. He is once again trying to prepare them for what they are still in denial about. He's going to be gone soon. And he talks about the kingdom priorities too, right? So I want you to make sure you see this is important. He also sees right through the fake fiscal self-righteousness of Judas and the other disciples rebuking them. He tells them what Mary did with the oil, get this, was more important than selling it and feeding the poor. He says there will always be poor. The poor will always be with us. Now, he isn't being callous. I want you to understand this. Jesus isn't saying forget about the poor. As a matter of fact, many people don't realize what he's doing is actually quoting an Old Testament verse. So he's actually going to affirm helping the poor. It's not saying don't feed the poor. He's affirming it. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 15 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. That's what he's quoting. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and the poor in your land. So he's not saying don't feed the poor. He's saying, oh, yeah, feed the poor, but not right now. Jesus makes it clear he takes priority even over social justice. Because, frankly, let's be honest, Christians, social justice doesn't mean anything if it doesn't end with eternal salvation. It's just a temporary pushing off of suffering is all it is. You can see, right, that from Mary's perspective, perspective, wasting a whole bottle of nard seems to be reasonable, a rational reaction to this moment she's having. A year's worth of oil? Small price to pay for who Jesus is. This is the Lamb of God. More on this incredible fact in a moment. But Jesus says that she's going to be remembered. Guys, this... This is the part that begs the question, right? Why did Jesus say in this passage that whenever the gospel is preached, this is is a stunning statement, because don't just read right over this. Whenever the gospel is preached, she's going to be remembered. Why? 
Why did Jesus lay down such a vivid marker about remembering Mary wherever the gospel is preached? It's quite a statement. I think I have a very good explanation for you. I can tell you this. Jesus wasn't surprised by her action. He he majestically, I believe, authored this whole moment right in her heart. Let's start with remembering who she was, right? And the events that brought her to this inspirational time. Remember, Jesus had resurrected her brother Lazarus. She is, in fact, more than anyone else, a firsthand daily witness to his resurrection power. Agreed? Every day she woke up, my brother is still alive. Her family, after that moment, you know, when Jesus comes in and resurrects somebody from your family who had been dead for three days, I mean, her family was in Jesus' inner circle. I would imagine that they had already anointed Lazarus' body with oil. But now they're very close. How do we know? Well, they're in Simon's house the night before Passover week starts. She's witnessed all these miracles by Jesus since that moment. She's heard all his teachings about his death and his coming kingdom. And suddenly, what I believe happens at that moment while she's serving, all she's learned, all she's experienced have gloriously collided together to create this precious moment, her moment where she received the gift of faith. That moment causes Mary to be overcome with affection and emotion that she cannot contain. She's sitting there serving. She's going around with the flask. She's starting to anoint. And then something hits. Oh, my. This is the Lamb of God who takes away my sins and has power over death. Oh, my goodness. She probably got chills up her spine. I think the last thing on Mary's mind was that she might draw the ire of the disciples. (laughs) This wasn't a premeditated, planned event to make her the center of attention. I believe she was just overcome with the moment. She's just trying to honor Jesus. She is anticipating his future glory. And Jesus is calling attention to her response as a right, rational, reasonable type of response for someone who at this point finally fully understands the gospel. It's probable that she's the first in this inner circle, in this group, perhaps maybe even the first in the whole world to understand the full impact of the death and the resurrection Nobody would be more understanding of what a resurrection looks like than her, maybe except for Lazarus. Doesn't it make sense why Jesus would say she'd be remembered every time the gospel is preached? It's pretty amazing. So I want to talk about the personal part of this passage. I want to talk about your Mary moment. Let me start off with a verse from Psalm 51. Look what David writes. Deliver me from sinfulness, O God. O God of my salvation. He says it twice. That invokes in the Hebrew poetry, construction, intense emotion. It's not deliver me from sinfulness, O God, O God. It's deliver me from sinfulness, O God. O God of my salvation. 
And what will happen? My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And how are his lips open? Because he's delivered from sinfulness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, Mary's story teaches us what it looks like the moment knowledge, grace, and mercy collide in our hearts. She set the example that Christ wanted remembered. The example of what it looks like for a Christ follower who at some point finally understands the centrality and the importance of the death and the resurrection of our own soul. The disciples, by the way, oddly enough, weren't quite there yet. They were still on their journey. They saw her, her extravagant organic worship as a waste. Now later, this is fascinating, later they would all experience their own personal Mary moment, would they not? As a matter of fact, three of them wrote about this story in their Gospels. <laughs> yeah, we better remember because Jesus said that's what it should look like, so they recorded it. Her extravagant adoration, her Mary moment, became famous all throughout the first century church. Everybody spoke about it. We've kind of forgotten about this story, haven't we, 2,000 years later? That's what we're doing today. I want to cause an indelible curve in your brain somewhere. You remember this. Because I want you to remember your moment. Do you remember a moment? Psalm 51, verse 12, restore, the me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. Think about this verse for a minute. David is saying, God, restore the joy. I've lost it. I've been distracted by other things. I have forgotten about the joy of my merry moment. Can you remember merry moments in your life? Moments of organic, extravagant response and worship to Jesus because of what he was doing? Moments when Jesus had your complete attention? Moments your heart was so full, you had no choice but to express it. It's what happens when your heart overflows with affection for Jesus, for what he has done for you. You can't hold it back. I'll say this. If you can't in some way relate to what Mary felt and her desire, and then not have some sort of a desire of it for yourself... Right? If you're not a little bit jealous of that emotion, that I would love to feel like she did. How can you call yourself a Christ follower? I mean, I heard a story recently from a sister in Christ about a friend she's been praying for for years. She loves this person. And she was describing how her friend had a Mary-type moment recently like the one in this story. What was that moment? She recognized Jesus was the Lamb of God, and she became a child of God. And this sister who was telling me this story, she was saying to me, you know, Pastor, I'm really jealous of my best friend right now because she's just consumed with Jesus. She goes, and it occurred to me when I was listening to her talk how excited she was. I've lost that. I needed my joy restored. That happened to me this week while I'm writing this sermon. Isn't that cool? 
See, over time, here's what happens, church. Over time, life on this earth tends to make our own merry moments fade. We start looking for world moments. It can be money, a job, when your favorite team kicks another team's can in the Super Bowl. I mean, for example, I'm just saying. Maybe it's political. I don't know. We start looking for merry moments from sources that cannot deliver. Sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's a dysfunctional relationship. And after a while, we forget how only Jesus is worthy of our extravagant affection. If that's you today, I want Mary's story, the one Jesus said should be remembered every time the gospel is preached. Let that be a reminder to you. A post-it note, if you will, this week to go back to those moments and ask Jesus to restore the joy of your salvation in your heart. I think some of you need it. But there's another personal application. Maybe today, is this your moment? Psalm 1611. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what the path of life is? It's salvation. There are some of you here in the room and some watching, some that might watch later on a rerun. You can't yet relate in your memory to a moment like this, but, but for some reason today, maybe for the first time, I can't re- remember that or relate to it, but I sure would like to. Maybe it's a little uncomfortable. Maybe it's a little intimidating. Where would I even start? How do I duplicate what Mary's talking about, what Pastor Joe's talking about? Well, let me tell you about the gospel. Jesus was Messiah. He was the Lamb of God who died for us, for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered death. In that gospel, Jesus took the consequences that you, that I, that we deserve for our sinfulness upon himself. And then those consequences, which the scripture says are death, you know what he did? He defeated them. See, once you understand this, not just understand it with the knowledge, but through faith and mercy, it collides with believing in your heart. It's an amazing merry moment. And here's what the moment might look like. You see, I got to tell you, I want to tell you this. You want to know whether or not you understand the gospel? Let me tell you this story about this first century believer named Mary. This is how they would preach it in the first century. Let me tell you about the moment she understood and none of us did. She took an expensive bottle of oil. She broke it off so she could pour it like water all over Jesus because she knew he was going to die for us, but also she believed in the resurrection. Her brother was Lazarus. That moment she understood, that was her only rational response. She's an inspirational example for us of what happens when Jesus takes over our heart and our soul That's the moment that we know the gospel has become real. And once you have that kind of personal moment where knowledge and grace and mercy collide in your heart and your soul, then you'll understand. 
Suddenly, Mary's moment isn't some random story in an old gospel called Mark or Matthew or John. It's one that you can personally identify with. Oh, yeah, I know how she feels. I didn't break a flask of oil, but I've been there. I know what she felt like. That moment that grace creates a brand new value system in your life. One that for the first time understands the true heart of worship. See, that's what happens when you are stunned by the reality of Jesus' death on the cross for you and the power of his resurrection. You can say, yeah, I got to say, if I were in Mary's shoes, I probably would have broken that oil flask and poured it out on him too. (laughs) I would have cared less what the disciples thought, especially Judas. Because Jesus is worth my extravagant worship. My prayer is that if you've had a merry moment or merry moments, that today you would remember them and your joy would be restored. If you haven't had one yet, there's the gospel and there's an example. That's why Jesus said every time the gospel's preached, she will be remembered. This woman, who was almost invisible while the men are being served dinner, became the greatest example of what it looks like when grace, mercy, and knowledge collide in your heart and soul. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that the power of your truth can create these merry moments in our life. Thank you so much that you orchestrated this event in her heart and life at this moment, at that time, for us to remember, to look back on and be encouraged by, even to desire. I pray for those in our church here and watching that have had merry moments, but the world has distracted them. The world has corrupted their heart and their mind and their eyes. The world has said, no, no, look here. Don't look there. I pray that you would allow them to have blinders on that creates a restoration of their joy, a return of that time when they had a merry moment, that you would encourage them, motivate them to extravagant worship, extravagant sacrifice once again. I pray for those who haven't quite experienced a merry moment but want to, by your spirit and grace, the same one that orchestrated it in the heart of Mary at that moment, I pray, God, that you would do it in their hearts even as we speak. That you would do something, stir something in their heart and mind that would allow knowledge of the gospel and your grace and your mercy to collide in a moment of faith and enlightenment that says, oh, Now I get why Mary did what she did. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. We're so thankful for all of you. I'm really excited about the fact that things are coming back together, coming back online. Um, There's plenty of opportunities to serve and be together. It's been a tough time, and we've neglected fellowship together as a church. That time is done. We need to be together. And for those of you that are waiting for vaccines and things like that, we're praying for you. We miss you. We love you. And we can't wait to see you. You guys have a great week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back.